Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Miranda Corcoran, and today I'm very happy to have the opportunity to speak with Ralph James Savarese, the author of See It Feelingly, Classic Novels, Autistic Readers, and The School of a Good English Professor, which was published in 2018 by Duke University Press. So, Ralph, welcome to the show, um, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, before we talk about the book in more detail, can you tell us a bit about yourself and about your background? Sure. So, I'm an English professor. I teach at Grinnell College in Iowa, which is a small liberal arts college. I teach 20th century American literature, creative writing, and disability studies. And uh, uh, about 20 years ago, I adopted a six-year-old non-speaking boy with autism from foster care. I actually wrote a book about that almost uh, a little more than 10 years ago. Um, and uh, raising him obviously taught me an immense amount about autism, but also about the ways in which we think about autism might not be um, as productive um, as, as they could be. So so he, he's, he's actually in the first chapter of this book, but that the, the business of being a father and an English professor together and reading books with him um, got me started on this project. Uh, so what was it that brought you to write this book in particular? Because it's such an interesting work. It really fuses very diverse genres, you know, re- uh, research on literature, disability studies, and elements of memoir. So it's a very unique text. But what actually brought you to write the book itself? So uh, two things. Um, uh, my son graduated from college two years ago, but during his junior year of high school, the mandatory text for his American literature class was Huck Finn. And I was really worried about reading that text with him because, or I was worried about him reading that text because, um, as you know, uh, Huck Finn um, ends up being adopted. He was badly abused by his father, even though the novel's told in a kind of comic tone. Um, there's some pretty uh, serious and harsh stuff that's, that's talked about. And I, I worried about that with my son. So, so I decided to read it with him and, and, and really start the business of reading books aloud together. And um, the other thing I would tell you is that my son was the first non-speaking person with autism included in a regular school in Iowa. Um, there, there may be no more than 10 non-speaking autistic folks who have graduated with a college degree. Why am I telling you this? There were so many other autistic people I knew who didn't have the chance to read serious works of literature with anyone. And so as I'm uh, fighting for my son's inclusion and facilitating his growth um, as a reader and as a thinker, I'm also thinking about all of the other uh, autistic folks who haven't been given the same opportunity. And I started working with some other folks. And pretty soon I thought, 
um, let's let's write a book about my experience reading different books with different folks across the spectrum. Okay, so before we dive into talking about the book in more detail, I'm sort of curious about these sort of misconceptions or preconceptions that people generally tend to have about autistic individuals. So can you talk a bit about the the triad of impairments or the so-called triad of impairments? What sort of assumptions do people usually have about people with autism? And how does your work go about countering that? Right. So um, so traditionally, we've thought about this triad of impairments. That would be an impairment in impairments in language, um, in imagination, and in social interaction. And so, you know, the, the, the sort of old way of looking at this would, dis, would be to say that autistics, for example, uh, couldn't understand metaphor or simile or irony or sarcasm or personification. And then if you think about imagination, the business of, of you know, literature is a, a place where we play with our imaginations, both as writers and readers. So there would be an impairment there. And then finally, the, the so-called impairment in social understanding is that, that uh, autistics would have tremendous difficulty understanding the mental states of others, understanding nuanced social reasoning, motivation, the kinds of conflicts. I, at, at one point in the book, I referred to the novel as a kind of moody jungle gym of conflict. And, and according to the old view, this would be the last place um, that uh, a kind of autistic mind would flourish, that they would be much better off, autistic people would be much better off, say, doing engineering or math or uh, computer coding. And so, for example, we had a very famous novel in the United States. It actually is written by a British guy, um, uh, Mark Haddon's The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. And Christopher, the protagonist, is the absolute embodiment of that old view of autism. He says that he doesn't understand autism. I mean, he doesn't understand metaphor. He doesn't really like proper novels. His main sort of intellectual pursuit is math. And one thing we know about autism now is that it's pretty heterogeneous. It's, we don't just have a spectrum. We have heterogeneity on every point along the spectrum. And that many of the things we presumed turned out to be incorrect. And so my own personal experience working with my son and with our, with other autistic uh, people taught me um, that um, maybe it's best not to follow this kind of stereotype. And let's see, let's see what folks with autism, um, what, 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 what can they do? That's really interesting because that novel that you mentioned, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, that's a very popular novel here in Ireland where I live as well. And I do remember that a few years ago, it may have changed now, but that was actually a set text in um, the Irish equivalent of high school. So it seems to be a very popular work, but it does also seem to promulgate this very monolithic view of autism and what individuals with autism are like, as if there is one standard way to be. So I'm really fascinated by how you sort of unravel that and how you undermine that stereotypical notion that I think thanks to popular culture, a lot of people have. So that was... Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you think about before Curious Incident, we had the, the movie Rain Man, and we have these stereotypes, and it's 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 fascinating to me that these 
these made up texts uh, end up standing in for a kind of scientific knowledge. And there's a kind of feedback loop where the science and then this sort of popular cultural imagination feed one another. And then we get stuck with this view of, of autism. I mean, not to jump ahead too quickly, but one of the readers in the book is Temple Grandin. And what we know about Temple Grandin, I mean, think about there must be a thousand interviewers, interviews with her on the web. And I discovered so many things that nobody had ever bothered to even ask her. For example, she said that her favorite undergraduate course was a literature course. Um, and she was able to quote uh, from memory uh, lines by Wordsworth and talk about Dante's Inferno. Where do you see that in the Hollywood movie about her life? Where do you see that in the interviews? And I asked her, how do we not know this? And she said, nobody's ever asked me about literature. They just asked me about cows. And so that, that was a real lesson to me about the obligation of researchers not to be driven by stereotype, but to remain open and, and not make presumption and, and ask questions that might yield answers that, that totally change how we think uh, about autism. Absolutely. Another thing that I found very interesting about your book was that you state at one point that essentially the purpose of the book is to reject that typical focus on autism's so-called deficits and to instead explore how a talent for sensory engagement might provide new insights into familiar works of literature. How does this kind of sensory engagement benefit the reading process? Right. So one of the areas that I uh, publish traditional scholarship in is called cognitive literary studies. And so it tries to bring um, what we're learning in neuroscience to bear on questions of reading. And so uh, the production of mental imagery is one of the sort of founding insights of, of cognitive literary studies. What do I mean by that? When I say the phrase red barn to you, you will use your traditional language centers in your brain to understand that sentence, but you will also make a mental image using your visual cortex. And so you will understand the phrase red barn um, by doing these two things at once. And so if we think of literature as language that is, that is unusually concrete and designed to generate mental imagery in the mind of the reader, this kind of almost cinema, what I call a cinema of emotion, where we're seeing pictures, we're producing pictures in our own minds, then it seems to me if we think about someone again like Temple Grandin, whose, whose famous memoir is called Thinking in Pictures, that a talent for mental imagery might actually line up quite, quite well with what literature asks of typical readers. Absolutely. Can you tell me a bit about the people you worked with while putting this book together? How did you come to meet them and how did you engage with them over the course of your work? So uh, in the prologue, I talk about reading Huck Finn with my son. So obviously I knew him. Um, over the years, I'd gotten to know a lot of other autistic folks and I started reading books with a young man and, and a fantastic writer named Tito Mukupajai, an immigrant from India. He lives in Austin, Texas. And in fact, he, he played a huge role in getting this book started because I'd gone out to interview him in Austin for a project I was doing with my wife on the neurodiversity movement. And at the end of the interview, 
He had never been allowed in a, in a, in a regular school. He had been entirely self-taught by his mom. So at the end of this interview, he says, I want to, he types out, I want to be your student. And it was an incredibly moving moment to me. And I was desperate. And I said, why don't we use Skype? I'd never used Skype even personally before, let alone as a kind of pedagogical tool. Um, and even his mom was skeptical about his ability to sit sort of patiently for an hour in front of a, a, a computer screen, but he was terrific at it. And uh, we've read, I mean, we've been doing this for more than a decade and we've read every book under the sun, but the book I read with him in the book, uh, in my book is uh, Moby Dick. And we read it two chapters a week for almost 17 months. The third chapter, actually the second chapter prop, proper um, uh, involves a young man from Syracuse, New York named Jamie Burke. I knew him as well. Um, and he's a, he's, a, he's a fantastically interesting person and reader. And he's pretty well known for having learned how to speak at the age of 12, 13, 14. Um, and so people are, are very much interested in rethinking what's possible, especially with, with respect to speech for the, the, the so-called non-speaking crowd. Um, I did not know the subject of chapter three, a woman named Dora Raymaker from Portland, Oregon. She uh, uh, is, a, is a computer coder, um, recently received her PhD, an artist, um, very, very synesthetic. Um, but I'd seen her in a film, a documentary, and um, very intriguing person. I had no idea of her own interest in science fiction. And I somehow miraculously proposed that uh, we would read um, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. And she was delighted. She'd seen um, the movie version of the novel at least 100 times and had never actually read the novel. Um, I did not know the subject of the fourth chapter, Jenny Belkin from Chicago. Very, very interesting person. I was sort of turned on to her by another friend. She's both deaf and autistic, and she's also multiracial. Um, and so she really uh, brought to the business of reading all of these different forms of difference. And then in the final chapter, I read a number of short stories with Temple Grandin. Uh, Temple had blurbed a couple of my books. I'd been on a panel with her years ago, but I didn't really know her uh, very well. But she was uh, happy to participate. Did you have any kind of criteria for choosing the books that you discussed or was there some sort of pattern or particular set of motivations for selecting particular texts? Yeah, so the, the Huck Finn was chosen by the school district. Um, with Tito Mukopajai, I had to give a lecture at the uh, International Herman Melville Conference and I needed an excuse to reread Moby Dick for the 10th time. And I'd never read it as slowly. So I, I proposed uh, reading that book and initially Tito Balk, because he, like many people, um, you know, knows that it's very long and that the plot, it's not exactly plot driven. I mean, you don't even encounter Moby Dick until about 500 pages into, into the novel. Yeah, it, it has quite the reputation. <laughs> It does, but I'll tell you, it's it's one of my favorite books in the world. And Tito absolutely changed his mind about that book and 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 loved it. 
Um, with with uh, Jamie Burke, he, I knew that he had minored in Native American studies at Syracuse University. And so I proposed Leslie Marmon Silko's ceremony. Um, at times, I was trying to align books with interest insofar as I could imagine what those interests might be. As I told you, I got lucky with Dora Raymaker in choosing um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, with Jenny Belkin, I chose uh, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter because it is a novel that takes up deafness. There's a, a, a the protagonist, the central protagonist is deaf. And then with Temple Grandin, I chose a couple of short stories that involved animals. There was a new collection that had come out. And the one thing I want to say is that um, I really changed my mind after doing this about what I should have done. In other words, you can hear me for the most part trying to align the books with what I perceive to be the interests of autistic readers. And on one level, what I was trying to do was maximize the chances of interest, right? I mean, we do this to some degree with our friends. We think about a book we've read that we like and we say, oh, that friend of mine will really love this. But on the other hand, there's something a little paternalistic, if not patronizing, for example, about imagining that Temple will only respond to short stories if they have animals in them. As I told you, she ended up uh, quoting from Wordsworth and talking about the Inferno. I could have chosen any book for Temple. I could have chosen any book for any of these readers. That was one of the things that I discovered. And the subtitle of the book, A No Good English Professor, one of the things I try to do is not hide my mistakes as a kind of ethnographer. Because if I'm going to criticize the, the available science or a good deal of it, I need to be really aware of the perils involved in um, studying people who are very different from me or whose brains are different from me. And what kinds of mistakes do I make? So that actually ended up being one of the mistakes I made or, or one of the things I think of as a mistake. It's really interesting how you incorporate all of that, though, how you incorporate your mistakes into the book and into the research process. So the whole thing becomes a learning exper experience for you as well. I guess, hence the title, The Schooling of a No Good English Professor. And it's really wonderful to see that process of learning and growing throughout the book. Yeah, and I, and I, wanna, I wanna put in a plug for a, a scholarly friend of mine, a woman named Lisa Zunshine, who teaches at the University of Kentucky. And I remember years ago at a, at a panel taking her to task in a paper I was delivering. There must have been 100, 200 people in the audience. I had no idea she was there. It was pretty severe in the paper. She had produced a very stereotypical understanding of, of autism in one of her books. And um, I took her to task. And afterwards, she found me. I was a little mortified because I didn't know she was there. And she said to me, tell me what I should read. And I was stunned by how open-minded she was. And this is an esteemed professor. She is an endowed chair at Kentucky. She's published at least 10 books, um, certainly more prominent than I was at the time, more, more prominent now than I am. But anyway, um, she, she did all of this reading, and then we had a number of conversations. And then a couple of years after this, we delivered a, a paper, or we were on a panel together at the Modern Language Association Conference, and she delivered a paper whose title was, I Was Wrong. And uh, a friend of mine, Michael Barabay, jokes 
for the first time in the history of the MLA, an organization that's been around for 130 years, a scholar uh, titled a paper, I was wrong. And um, I thought, wow, that is really uh, a kind of humility that is important, uh, you know, on its own, but really important when we're talking about ethnography. Um, I mean, really, really, really important. Lisa took this so seriously that she insisted that the publishers of her book um, uh, revise the digital versions and not print a new, uh, you know, print version uh, with that chapter about about autism. And that, that really moved me because I have to tell you that if the roles had been reversed, I would probably not have been as generous as she was. Um, at the time. And so this is very much part of the project. And and it's very much part of how I've raised my son in in recognizing um, ways that I've been wrong. In fact, in in my first book, which is a memoir called Reasonable People, my son wrote the last chapter. And the, the deal we had was, first of all, he had to give me permission to publish the book. And once he did that, I said, well, you can have the last chapter. You can say whatever you want. And I will only read it once the book is published. And the chapter is called It's My Story. And the first thing he does is take me to task for the the way in which my angle on the adoption story is very different from his. He did not care for my liberal politics about welfare mothers, his particular birth mother had been very, very violent with him and actually tried to drown him in a bath. Um, and so as painful as it was for me to read my son, uh, son's different take on our shared experience, I thought it was incredibly important and that the book really staged a collision of, of points of view and a kind of emerging understanding that ne- needs to be arrived at through a kind of generous, open-minded labor. Of course, um, that's really interesting, actually. And I, actually, that was amazing, the idea of um, asking your son to write the final chapter and just discovering that his perspective was so different. That's really fascinating. And actually, returning to the subject of your son, DJ, I was really moved by a story you tell in the first chapter of your book. And you talk about how when he was reading about Harriet Tubman and about a little boy who was killed by the Germans, uh, a little Polish boy who was killed, that he got so upset that he couldn't continue reading the stories. And the reason for this is, as he says himself, that he feels the character's feelings. And that's just such a unique, empathic capability. How does that affect DJ's reading, that sort of unique empathy? Yeah, and the first thing I'd say is again that that business of uh, identifying with the characters so intensely runs absolutely counter to the stereotype of autism. Um, Eugenie Belkin talks about this as well. That feeling is paramount for her, and so so with my son, um, we really had to work with. He loved reading these books, but it took so much out of him. And one of the things we noticed in the public school was there were all these wonderful teachers who were interested in exposing students to the hardships of other people, sometimes in the United States, sometimes abroad. And perhaps at times they forgot that they had students in their very own classrooms 
who had experienced horrors they couldn't even conceive of. I mean, my son was treated terribly by his birth mother and then horrifically in foster care. And so I, I really do believe that his kind of autism um, uh, leads him to do this business of identifying, almost merging, fusing with these characters. And then his own uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, made this process even more um, perilous in some ways. And so one of the things I did as an English professor was constantly ask him to step back and analyze the story uh, with respect to how is it told? What is the point of view? Um, analyze the plot. I mean, ironically, this is something that I'm sometimes critis criticized for by my students who just want to read with feeling themselves. And in the classroom, I'm saying, no, 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 we got to analyze this. It, how, how has this thing been made? But that process allowed DJ just enough distance to survive the business of reading, the business of suspense, and begin to you know, better balance the cognitive and the emotional. He still has trouble to this day with very, very, very difficult um, uh, books. Actually, speaking of your son, DJ, I believe he recently won a Peabody Award for a short film that he made. Could you tell me a bit about the film and a bit about DJ's work as well? Yeah, it's actually a full-length documentary. So he, he uh, um, let's see, after I published Reasonable People, the memoir about him, I was on public radio and was contacted by a number of filmmakers. And um, they all wanted to do a movie. And I said, well, let, let's not let's not um, do a movie of the book. Why don't you do a movie with DJ? By this point, um, DJ was fully capable um, uh, as a writer, as a student, and uh, any number of them balked, but one didn't. One was was apprehensive about the business of doing a film with somebody who was also the subject. But I knew, because um, I'm very familiar with the history of film on disability and on autism in particular, that there was no way we were going to surrender the business of, of representing my son's difference to a stranger, to somebody who um, is just simply not as familiar. So as part of the contract, we agreed that DJ would have, quote, a full share of editorial control. And this turned out to be a really, really difficult thing. The film was delayed. But in any event, it follows him from ninth grade through his first year at Oberlin College in Ohio as Oberlin's first non-speaking student with autism. Oberlin, like Grinnell, where I teach, is a small residential uh, liberal arts college. And so he was living in the dorm with an aide. And you, you watch him. You watch him in school, outside of school, applying to colleges. He actually, DJ insisted on bringing the camera crew into his interviews. Um, he wanted really to use the film to show the parents of other uh, kids with autism, particularly those that, who don't speak, that everything was possible, that they could dream the way any other kid um, could dream. And the film did incredibly well. It won a Peabody Award and was a finalist for the Emmy and won all sorts of film festival um, awards. And he's one of the youngest Peabody Award winners uh, ever. That's amazing. Um, I believe, is it available on PBS or I think some kind of streaming service or anything like that? 
Yeah, so so it's it sort of regularly appears on PBS. It's going to be on PBS in in April, which is Autism Awareness Month. Um, if it's also on the website, the title of the film is Deej, D E E J. That's our nickname for DJ, and so that's the title of the film. And if you just Google Deej movie, it'll come up. And right now, you have to purchase the film. Streaming rights are coming. But they're but they're still in that process of selling films and um, screening them uh, at film festivals and on TV. I will say I'm not trying to hawk this film. We received not one penny of the profits from selling the film. So just to be clear to your listeners. <laughs> Oh, no, that's great. I actually think a lot of our listeners, especially, you know, after listening to this podcast and perhaps after taking a look at your book, I think they'd be quite interested in that as well. So it's actually very good to direct them to where they can actually find the film. But to return to the book itself and to some of the people you were speaking with, one thing that I found just really captivating was the discussion you were having with one young man. I believe that was uh, Tito Mukopaujai, and he was talking about Moby Dick. And while reading it, he found himself very strongly identifying with the whale. Can you tell me a bit more about his response and his reasons for identifying with Moby Dick? Sure, that's a great question. And and one of the things that, that really propelled me through uh, the book in thinking about different patterns of identification. And so I think there were two main reasons that Tito identified, well, maybe three, uh, with uh, the the animal uh, antagonist in Melville's novel. The first I would say is that Tito really appreciated Melville's descriptions of the sea and the and 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 the the, uh, the various uh, entities who live in the sea, and he starts borrowing some of this fluid language that Melville employs to describe his own senses. And so, for example, he's very very synesthetic. And so, for example, in a in a in a scanner, when somebody touched him, his visual cortex lit up. When he hears language, he sometimes smells it and sees it. And so for him, the senses are not sort of neatly divided um, or neatly integrated. They're moving like crazy. And so he, he began to identify with the, um, the fluid world that the whale lives in. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and it's pretty obvious on one level, the novel recounts a hunt. They're hunting and slaughtering whales until they finally meet Moby Dick and hope to slaughter this great Leviathan. And Tito, like many self-advocates across the world, believed that the the way in which um, scientists and, and people at large talk about autism is strangely analogous to this business of wanting to hunt. They're hunting for a cure. The idea is to somehow eliminate this sort of, de- I'm putting scare quotes around all of these words, the devastating tragedy or disorder of autism. This, and, and Ahab's rage at Moby Dick for taking his leg becomes a kind of analogy for the way in which many parents of autistic kids imagine that autism has stolen their children. And so 
very quickly, um, Moby Dick became a kind of allegory for this hunt, um, this business of trying to not just understand autism, but ultimately eliminate it. And that, that view runs absolutely counter to the view called neurodiversity, which, which wants to respect autism as another way of being. As, an, as, as, as a different form of cognition. Yes, it has challenges, but it also has many, many strengths and, and a, a distinct kind of beauty. Um, the third thing, and this is really, really profound for me as a teacher, he identified with, with, with the whale because the whale doesn't speak. And there are any of key moments in the novel where Ahab, the captain, um, maliciously addresses a dead whale or part of a dead whale on the deck of the Pequod, the ship, and says, speak, thou vast and venerable head, speak, you know, tell me your secrets. And of course the whale can't speak because the whale is dead. But Ahab is aggravated as much by um, the loss of his leg at the hands of this creature as he is by the mystery of this, this kind of animal intelligence. And so we really, really identified with a misunderstood creature who can't communicate in a human, a typically human way. And it really brought home to me the need to foreground this motif of speech and, and the collision of animal and human intelligence the next time I teach the book. It's really important to have readers like Tito who don't speak um, tell us how this novel, um, what this novel is doing to them or how they are responding to the novel. That's such a profound reading of the novel. Um, it's really, really moving. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to tell you that, I, I mean, so many times I was, I, I was literally nearly brought to tears and also dumbfounded by the gap between what I thought I knew <laughs> And what I actually knew. In other words, I, I have a chapter in my dissertation years and years and years and years ago on Melville. I'd read this novel countless times. But what this brings home is a central tenet of reader response theory in my discipline. These texts are not static. These texts come, come alive in the, in the minds of individual readers who bring all sorts of differences to the act of reading. And that is an argument in and of itself for diversity, diversity of all kinds, including neurological diversity. We want to see what happens to these texts when, when very, very different readers pick them up. Absolutely. Um, returning to that issue of diversity, I was really interested in your point um, that Autism is usually viewed as a white, I guess, again, in scarecrow quotes, uh, disorder, that it's usually considered something that is associated with, um, with white people. How did, you, how did your research move beyond that sort of narrow view of how we understand autism? Well, there, there are any number of remarkable self-advocates um, who have insisted on what's called a kind of intersectional understanding of autism. So it's not enough to just talk about autism. You need to talk about autism and gender. You need to talk about autism and race, autism and ethnicity. So for example, you know, for years and years and years, we didn't really think about autism and gender. And there's very good research that shows the, dis the distinction or the difference 
between the ways that autism might manifest itself in young boys and young girls. So girls for a long time tended to receive a diagnosis much, much later. So unless we're thinking about autism in a specific context, in other words, in relationship to other forms of difference, we're going to miss key things. And of course, this kind of work is happening um, apart from autism in literary studies, thinking about, you know, thinking intersectionally about race and gender, um, class and race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or sexuality. And so, so um, you know, I, I, I thought I, I absolutely have to do this. And in, in the chapter with Eugenie Belkin, um, I don't think anybody could be more diverse, um, deaf, autistic, one ear, uh, she has a hearing aid, another ear, a cochlear implant. She's fluent in sign language. She's black. She's Asian. She's Jewish. She's a mother of an autistic child. All of these differences. H- how do you think through that level of, 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 of intersectionality? But Tito himself is an is in, in Indian, uh, now Indian American man. Um, uh, Jamie Burke grew up in a household where his father was a prison guard. Um, There are differences of all kinds that we need to really pay attention to. My son started off as an unbelievably poor homeless child who was institutionalized and and now is upper middle class enjoying all sorts of opportunities. I mean, these differences really, really matter. So, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, because you you sort of mentioned this at the beginning of the interview, um, was your choice to interview Temple Grandin, who I suppose is herself a really fascinating um, example of that sort of intersectional approach to understanding autism. But could you tell me a bit about the texts that you chose to discuss with her and why did you choose those and why are you sort of maybe second guessing those choices now? So, as I said at, at, toward the beginning, I, I chose two short stories from an, a recent anthology about animals in contemporary fiction. Unlike some of my other readers, Tito didn't, I mean, uh, Temple didn't have as much time to give me. She travels incredibly. I mean, she gives so many talks. And so, she really didn't have the time to sit down and read a novel over four or five months. That's the one of one of the things I want to underscore with all of the other folks. I really, really got to know them because we were meeting every week, sometimes for as much as a year and a half to talk about one book or a number of books. With Temple, I didn't have that, that luxury. So I chose two stories. One of them is called Meat and it's, Uh, narrated by a young girl whose father is appalled by the commercial um, sort of meat industry and decides to raise his own pigs and slaughter them. And the story's pretty ghoulish, but also pretty clever in the way that it uses dramatic irony to capture this gap between what this young girl is taking in and what, say, an adult reader would take in. And obviously, Temple's, um, you know, she's known for having uh, 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 made these tremendous innovations in the commercial meat uh, industry. And so in terms of making it more humane, um, redesigning the way um, animals are 
um, not just housed, but cared for. And so I was curious, what's she going to do with a very, very familiar theme, but in the context of fiction, and, and as important to me, through this uh, narrator of a young girl, how responsive would she be to the dramatic irony in the story? The second story involved a, a female researcher in Antarctica who's trying to save um, a species of, inge- of, of endangered penguins. And th- that story turns on the researcher's choice to spurn romantic relationships in order to tend to these animals in, who, who, who are in desperate need of, of protection. And she has a, the researcher has a moment of more than a moment of profound regret in thinking, have I given up my chance at love? Have I given up my chance at having children? And of course, Temple had, been, had has quite famously talked about her own ch- uh, choice to remain unmarried, to remain celibate, and has traditionally talked about that in the context of autism. She has claimed that autism made it too difficult for her to have romantic relationships. So I was in, I was curious what would happen. Would she identify with this researcher? Let me reiterate again how, how much my thinking changed over the course of uh, doing these kinds of eth- ethnographical discussions with my autistic collaborators that I now sort of think it was, it was really a, a bad idea and, and somewhat insensitive to choose those two particular stories as if I were testing her. Nonetheless, her responses to these stories proved incredibly illuminating. Um, I think with respect to the story Meet, the, the topic was too familiar to her. And so she was really managing that story um, in the way that she's talked in her own writings um, again and again and again about at the ethical treatment and slaughter of, of animals. The second story was quite shocking to her, and she did not identify with this researcher who, um, I mean, the plot is super complicated, but she ends up having an affair with uh, a brief affair in Antarctica of all places with this passenger on a, on, a, a, on a tour boat. And interestingly enough, the tour boat company funds the research that she does. She, she identified with the, the, the penguins um, and really thought through their predicament, um, which was interesting to me. But toward the end of our discussion, she had a quite an emotional response where she remembered things from her past. Her mother gets divorced when she's around 14 and her new husband's sister gets divorced and remarried. Her new husband's sister owns a ranch in Arizona and she goes out and spends the summer. And this is how her career with cattle begins. But at that ranch, her new husband's sister's husband turns out to have been um, uh, what she calls a very mean drunk and abusive and scared her desperately. And so the account of her own celibacy was complicated by these memories of um, an abusive man. And then suddenly those memories provoked comments from her 
like I've never seen a marriage I admire or, or could even imagine being in, something that she's never said um, in print. And so suddenly this story, the reading of this story, complicated her own account of decisions she had made in the past. And, and it was really a marvelous thing because this is, of course, what we all do with literature. We use literature as a way of rethinking important questions in our own lives. Absolutely. Um, that actually might be a good way to move on to our next question about the relationship between literature and how we understand our lives and the world around us. Because in your epilogue, you speak about how one of the pe young people that you work with, uh, Tito Mukupaujai, and his reaction to hearing about racially motivated violence, I think, in Kansas. And you pose the question of what is the use of literature in the face of this kind of barbarity? So do you think that literature can serve a purpose in this kind of context? Do you think literature can be a weapon against barbarism and hatred? I mean, I can, it, 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 but only if people read it, right? I mean, this is the great conundrum because I believe that if anybody engages in this process of thoughtful reading, they recognize that we're always uh, engaging with people who are quite different from ourselves. Um, even if they appear to be the same with respect to race or class or gender, they have very, very different minds and very different experiences. And in this regard, the, the ethnographical structure or mode of the book is really, really important. I was trying to model the process by which we could circumvent stereotypes and, and even more crucially, the kind of violent uh, and frustrating hatred that s seems to have boiled up in this, in, or bubbled up rather, in this country under the current, under the current president. But it also brought home to me, Tito brought home to me, just how vulnerable people who are different are under in this context. And that um, Tito was already worried about um, being out in public, let us say, as a um, autistic man who could be labeled as, uh, quote unquote, significantly disabled. Well, he's not just an autistic man. He's an Indian autistic man. And that violence in, in Kansas... Um, the people who per perpetrated this thought the men were Iranian. They, they didn't even have a, a proper understanding of who their alleged, I mean, who their victims were. Um, this is a kind of rambling answer. But, but I believe in what, liter what literature can do is help us to think through the lives of others and our own relationship to those lives. It can help us to think better and more adequate, more, more complexly about um, different lives. But of course, it's not going to do any of that if people aren't, aren't reading. Of course, absolutely. Um, so just as a final question before I let you go, where are you going next with your research? Will you be continuing this kind of work or will you be moving on to something else? That's a really good question. Um, and I've been, usually I have a very clear idea of the next book as I'm finishing the last one. Um, so I'm not a hundred percent clear, but I, I'm, but I'm very, very intrigued by the process that I went through. I mean, it took forever to do this because the ethnographical part of reading 
and capturing what, what my collaborators uh, said, that was any number of years. And then it took at least a year and a half to write the book. And then you had to revise it and, and you know, sort of produce it as a book through the press. Um, so I don't know whether I want to spend that much time uh, on a book per se, but I definitely want to continue the business of reading and writing with people who have neurological differences. And I'll just put in a, a quick plug for a buddy of mine in, in Minneapolis who uh, uh, works with autistic young people and teaching them creative writing. And he's got a little press called Unrestricted Interest. And together we're trying to start a kind of online learning space where um, autistic young people who are not having a lot of luck in the public school system could uh, both read literature and receive some instruction um, in creative writing. And that might end up being a kind of writing project. There might be a book that comes out of that or a little, a little film. Um, I'm also a creative writer. So I've got, a, I'm thinking about a novel maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it all sound it all sounds very interesting, particularly that idea of an online learning space. So, uh, you know, do keep us posted on that. It sounds really, really fascinating, and I think maybe in some ways very, very necessary. But I just wanted, to, as we're wrapping up, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time and for taking time out of your day to speak to us and to answer some questions on your book. So, thank you so much for joining us. It was, a, it was really a delight. Thank you for the questions you asked. I really appreciate it. So that was Ralph James Savarese talking about his book, See It Feelingly, Classic Novels, Autistic Readers, and the Schooling of a No-Good English Professor. It was published in 2018 with Duke University Press. I'm Miranda Corcoran for New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you.